<clears throat> what is uh, your perception of God? And when I ask, what is your perception of God? I'm asking that both as what is what you know it should be, and then what is sometimes your heart or your prayer life or other parts of your life actually reveal it to be? Because I think if you're a Christian, if you've been to church, you probably have a sense of like, okay, there's a right answer. If he's a good and loving father, he's gracious, and all the, the realities that we know to be true about God, he's all-powerful, he's, he's, you know, holds all things together. Uh, but I think there's also a reality where all the things that we know are wrong, sometimes, if I'm honest, I recognize, again, mainly through my prayer life, that I'm interacting with God like he's an angry slave driver or like he's a disappointed judge or he's a distant deistic maker. He set the whole thing up and he walked away and he's not that involved or he's like mysterious and just an enigma. Like there's just no way to fully grasp all of who he is. And again, I've noticed this just in ways where I'm praying, but I'm not praying like with a real expectancy, like he's actually going to jump in and do this, or maybe like quick do everything but pray. And there's other ways this probably sits out and reveals in your, or plays out and reveals in your life, but I want to submit to us for this morning a truth that we are going to be dealing with over and over again, and that is God is a God who wants to be known. He wants to be known, and he wants to know you. And when I use that language, know and known, of course, in, throughout Scripture, this concept of being known is so much more than just understanding information, but there is a deep intimacy of relationship that's implied. When God wants to know you, he knows everything about you, but he wants to be in deep, intimate relationship with you, and he wants you to be in deep, intimate relation with him. He wants you to know him. And again, that's something where if you've been around church, that's probably like, well, yeah, of course, that's true. But again, sometimes the reality of, of really holding on to beliefs and really holding on to what we believe to be true is the act of getting that down from our understanding of it into integration with our soul, getting it down at a nervous level system so that I recognize in prayer I'm not like running to do things or running to just not really trust that God's going to interact in or interact with my life, but I understand that he, he wants to know me. He wants me to know him. He wants me to interact with him. He wants me to walk with him, learn from him. He wants to impart and grow me in wisdom. Because the phrase is said a lot that we are made for to be in relationship with God, which I, for me always like lands hollow is really cheesy language. But we said like last week in the series that we just started, which I'll intro here again in a second, we said that, that we are made for nothing less than a, a relationship with the transcendent. It's why we go to concerts and try to have epic experiences and go to the mountains and go to the beach and go to things where we try to like just get our souls next to things that feel transcendent because we are meant to have a relationship with the divine, but it's not just meant to be this, like, trying to be in awe, awe and worship, though that's very much so an aspect of what it is to know God, but it's also meant to be intimate and walking with him and growing with him and being shaped by him and be, learning from his wisdom and knowing him continually more. And again, not just knowing him in an intellectual sense, but in a heart, a soul, a will sense. And again... God wants to be known, 
and know you. He wants to be intimately connected. He doesn't want to be far, but walk with you intimately. And this is fitting into the series that we started last week, which is called Foundations, which is a look at the foundational things that we believe as a church. It's also actually walking through our statement of faith. On our website at somedowntown.church, if you follow our beliefs and you will come to a statement of faith, there's just going to be these little boxes. And last week, we talked about the triune God. Uh, this week, we're talking about the doctrine of revelation and how God reveals himself. And again, we're doing this series because we recognize that how we believe matters. What you believe matters. What you do and what you believe, it affects the way that you interact with your work, what work you choose, how you parent, how you are in marriage, how you interact with your singleness, how you interact with culture. Everything is flowing from what you believe. And so we want to, again, hold on to these truths that we say, hey, these are, these are things that we just, the church has held on to for millennia now. And how do these truths affect our lives now in the way that we interact with the world now. So again, we are in this week, the, the doctrine of revelation, that God is not distant, he's not hiding, but throughout history, he has been bringing himself to be more fully known. Because he wants to be. And from the jump, you see God initiating and revealing himself. And let's go to Genesis for this. We're going to be talking about three specific ways in which that we hold on to that God is revealing himself to be known. And the first one, from Genesis 1. Uh, verse 1, and while we could read the whole chapter, we'll probably just stop after the first little bit. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Again, the chapter's going to go on, and it's going to be showing God creating. But real-life question here in this moment, just posed to you. I'm actually asking this question. How does God create? Again, actually asking that question. How does God create? He says something. He speaks. Thank you. God speaks. The act of speaking, if I speak to you, I am by nature of what I'm doing. I am attempting to reveal myself. I'm attempting to reveal a thought, a part of me, maybe just a perception I have, something I see. There would be no reason to communicate if I had did not have need to reveal a part of what's internal and unseen of me to now be something that is now seen of me. But when God speaks, his words are so true that it actually manifests itself, that it actually becomes reality. That the first way that we see God revealing himself and saying, I deeply want to be known, is by the way that he creates, and the way that he does that is through speaking, revealing himself. And so, as we've always done throughout history, the Christian 
church and the people of God that are following Jesus have said, how do we know God? We look around at creation. We look at the way that he created this place. Okay, so by best ways to scientifically measure the universe of what we can observe of it, the observable universe, is 46 billion light years expanding in every direction. So that's 46 billion light years. The, the, the amount of the distance that light can travel in a year, going at the speed of light, is what light does. And going out for 46 billion years, that is in every direction, that direction, that direction, and completely all 360 dimensional in every way. And that's constantly expanding. God is revealing to us in just a simple way of the expanse of what we are in. His size, his power, his ability to be sovereign and rule over something that we can only guess at the depths of. Or you could look at the idea of just when he makes here in Genesis, he makes plants and animals. He could have made one kind of plant. He could have made one animal. But he makes deep richness of, of different species and ways that they interact and ways that, I, I mean, if you watch these like Planet Earth documentaries, which they can just kind of keep making to infinity because there's just so much more that we can find out about the power of creation and who God is. And, and you find out by one of them that like it's like sand that flows off of like the Saharan desert and goes across the ocean to like other parts of the world and does that in a way that if that didn't happen, it wouldn't keep all of the world and all the ecosystems in balance, but yet they're all held together by that. And again, you look at the species of the world and see color and creativity and, and beauty. I mean, there's a narwhal for crying out loud. I mean, for, like forever, like you just think of that as like a mythical being, you know, it's like, because it's like a, a whale porpoise thing that has a unicorn horn in the middle of like the Arctic Sea and everything. That's just amazing. And, and you have things like sunsets and forests and mountains and oceans, as we already said, and colors. And you have seasons like the first weekend in March when it all of a sudden feels like it's actually spring and everybody is on their bike and Instagramming themselves at some sort of outdoor seating area because it is this beautiful moment that we experience seasons change and God creates all of these things and complexities about these things that we have yet to understand though we've been studying this and tracking this for all of human history. And there's things like food, I mean, just the concept of food. I mean, what you could have just, we could have just received nutrition by just like receiving, you know, pods of paste that just like entered in and gave us all nourishment. Yet there's this richness of palates and cultures and spices and all sorts of sauces and cooking techniques and ways that, I mean, you just walk into places and they're like, I've never thought to put that with that and cook it like that, but yet it's made this whole flavor explosion and now it's trending. And it's all because of God's created all of this and revealing, this is who I am. This is my beauty. This is my unity. This is my diversity. This is all that you can see in me. This is my power, my sovereignty, my creativity. I mean, then you get stuff like music. I, I, there was, uh, uh, who was it? Philip Yancey writes a, writes a memoir recently where he says some of the things that 
that drew him back to faith when he lost his faith, one of them was just the beauty of music. He said, music doesn't have to be beautiful. You can have horrible, wrenching sound, but yet he said there's a way to create it and make beauty, and he said there's just something transcendent behind it. Or sciences and arts and innovation. I mean, mathematics. Uh, Eugene uh, was at Wigner was a, he's not a Christian, he's an atheist, he was a mathematician, but he wrote a whole paper years ago called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. Because he said, it's just this system that just perfectly works, and it makes no sense why all of a sudden we just drop in and there's this way of seeing and measuring the world that is just consistent and universal. And he said, it's a gift. He had no other way to describe it other than what you would describe a blessing a, a, a wonderful father giving something to a child, and he called it mathematics, and he said it's unreasonably effective. And all of these disciplines have entire ways of studying them that people are continuing to expand and deepen our knowledge, and every time it happens, we find more of what it is to know the God of the universe. A God who creates this, creates like this, is not trying to hide himself. He's not trying to be mysterious. He's not trying to be distant and far. He is begging to be known. He is displaying himself and inviting you to be near him. I mean, this is what Romans 1 says. When Paul's writing, he says, like, the realities of God have been plain to see from all of the world since the beginning of creation. There's just something when you see the goodness of the rains falling on both the wicked and the, the good, as Jesus talks about. They says you see God's graciousness, you see his love of humanity and his willing to be blessing and give abundance and give generously and take care of the world. I mean, there's so much just by learning from creation that we know about God. This is what Psalm 19 says, where it says, the heavens declare the glories of God, and we are meant to just eventually fall into awe and worship when understanding him in his deepness and his richness in creation. But this is not the only, uh, or I, I should say in this way, that his revelation in, in creation, which we talk about in our statement of faith, is powerful, but yet there's ways that he even more specifically reveals himself. And the second one would be that God reveals himself, yes, in creation, he also reveals himself to be known in his word. I'm actually going to put up our statement of faith, which I think we have a slide for here. The statement of faith says this. This is uh, not just the entirety of the statement of faith, but specifically on the doctrine of revelation. God has graciously disclosed his existence and power in the created order, and has supremely revealed himself to fallen human beings in the person of his son, the incarnate word. We'll go back to that in a minute. Moreover, this God is a speaking God who by his spirit has graciously disclosed himself in human words. We believe that God has inspired the words preserved in the scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament which are both record and means of his saving work in the world. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in its original writings, complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every dominion of knowledge to which it speaks. We confess that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively, but we affirm that enlightened by the Spirit of God, we can know God's revealed truth truly. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction, 
and all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command and all that it requires, and trusted as God's pledge and all that it promises. And God's people hear, believe, and do the word. They are equipped as disciples of Christ and witnesses to the gospel. We believe as a church that we possess the words of God, that we understand and we know how he is revealed because, yes, he has spoken in creation and he has spoken through the recorded words of the 66 books of the Bible. Now, this, I will admit, is maybe one of the more troubling doctrines that we might go through in this series. Because here's the thing, we have a troubling relationship to Scripture as a culture nowadays. And I'm not just saying, like, outside the church. I'm saying inside the church, too. I mean, there's all sorts of really weird stuff in here. I mean, what in the world is going on with the Nephilim in Genesis 6? <laughs> and some of you are just like, I don't even know. But look, go down that wormhole. Uh, I mean, just what's with all this sense of, like, family, like, seeming incest, and, and there's genocide of, of, of populations, and there's polygamy, and it's all just wrapped in and presented, and there's a ton to just, as you look through, feel confused about, feel weird about. Uh, there's the miraculous, and we often wrestle with that with culture, of how do we, you know, do we say, I mean, we can never reproduce the miraculous by definition of what it is, but yet, if we're skeptical of it, but yet it's presented very plainly here. There's teaching that offends everybody at some point. And if it doesn't, I don't think you're reading the words really with enough deep intention to be offended or challenged at some point. And so, and then of course there's just the human element of Scripture that's written by humans. I mean, this gives one side just the sense where you just completely deconstruct Scripture. And so it just becomes like, well, it's human only, there's error, there's cultural irrelevancy now because as it's progressed along, there's just so much that we like, have an interesting idea of what people once thought about the God of, of Abraham and, and Isaac and, and Jacob and the God of Christianity and Judaism and all those things. Uh, but really, we don't necessarily have the words of God. And maybe there's a sense where, no, it's more just like it's become allegorical. Like, you can read it and you can see, like, okay, when, you know, we fight Jericho, we learn what is our Jericho, and the Spirit of God fills us. And when Jesus died and rose again, he didn't actually die and rise again, because we don't actually see that ever happen, but we actually see someone who spiritually rose. And his Spirit is in us and affects us, and is now, it's just as important that he actually rose again. Or it just becomes kind of allegory and something that, like, okay, it's just kind of in the myth category. Or you get more of just like, it's harmful, it's regressive, and it's an obstacle to progress and to live in peace in the world. But then you also, if you are here and you are uh, like, I'm one who gives authority to Scripture, we can also talk about the idea of that you believe the Bible, but all the things that I just talked about, you're like, yeah, I don't know, it's like, I just don't know what to deal with those. I don't know how to work with those categories. I don't know how to interact with the scriptures in ways. And I just, you find yourself often, I mean, this is the moment where you're like in your reading and you just read something really like just crazy and out there, or something in the law that just seems like confusing and weird. And why are we talking about menstruation and when, you know, women can be clean and unclean? And you're just like, flip the page. Because I have no clue what to do with that and categorize that. 
I have no clue what to do. And it says, hey, wipe out the people of Canaan. And it's just like, man, I don't know what to do with that when I wrestle with who God is and his grace and his mercy that he sees to all nations. And so we just have these parts of Scripture that we, if we're honest, we want to put authority to it, but yet it's really hard to submit your full allegiance and authority to something that you just fundamentally are wrestling with and don't even know if you can abide if you really like looked at it hard enough. It's hard to put authority to something and say, like, I'm not going to think about certain parts of it. When it says all of God's scripture, all of his word is, is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And so I, it leads us to do a few things with scripture. We treat it as uh, these, uh, I borrow, I think, uh, this conversation recently, I thought, by uh, Tim Mackey and John Collins of the Bible Project, because that was really helpful. They talked about just ways that we, we treat Scripture, in which we treat it like the moral handbook of, like, how do I just, like, learn morality and just basic instructions, you know, the basic instructions before leaving Earth, B-I-B-L-E. Uh, like, how do I interact with Scripture in that way? of just like, okay, I need to morally learn what's going on. However, if, that's, if it's a moral handbook, holy cow, then, like, good gravy, what you were going to do to your... You neighbors from another country or something like that. Um, but if it's something more than that, then you say, okay, maybe it's just like, you know, ways to have a reference book for life of like, okay, who do I marry? What do I do? How, what job do I take? Where do I move? And you're just constantly looking in the scriptures to try to reveal to you how you live your life now, which again, it can do that. There's parts of it that can give you wisdom, but it's never going to just say like, marry Sharon, you know? Uh, you're like, oh, wow, that's nice. Um, that, that was helpful. Uh, you open it back up and it never says that again. How did that happen? Um, but yet we're doing that when we flip, right? We're doing that. We're waiting there for that. And whatever it is, then you, a lot of times we just fall into daily devotional readings where it's just like, I'm going to take a quick snippet, which is not bad. It's good. I mean, we should be regularly and daily ingesting scripture to meditate upon it. But again, there's some ways that we can just kind of take it quickly and never wrestle with interpreting it, never wrestle with these difficulties of it, uh, we don't actually feel connected and like we're walking with God and learning from his wisdom. And I've now just opened up more topics and subjects than we have hope to be able to cover in this morning. And so I'm not going to, this whole series is not going to be exhaustive. But I want to just briefly work through a bit of what you hold in your hand and what reflects in this idea of these 66 books that are perfectly revealing who God is, how that's true with everything that we just talked about. And again, I'm not going to be able to hit it all. I'm sure there's going to be things that I don't say fully, and I apologize ahead of time for misspeaking. But I want to give us a better picture of what God is doing when he re reveals in Scripture. And actually, this I also borrow partially from these wordings from the Bible Project, which is not a perfect inspired organization, but I really like their definition on this, which I thought was helpful. Uh, I added to it a little bit, but scripture is not a moral rule book. It's not a reference book. It's not a quick pick-me-up, but it is divine and human created meditation literature. That is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Divine and human created meditation literature that is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Really quickly, let me say just brief words about those things. It is divine. And so, we believe that you have the words of God. This was not just Moses or Paul or Isaiah just making things up, sitting on a mountain, being like, I have pressure, i got to come down with something, and trying to manipulate the world into their thoughts. But we actually believe we have God's Spirit as inspired 
and written himself out onto the page. That's probably a much easier side to accept than also pairing with the fact that this is a human created book. It is completely divine and completely human. It similarly, in ways that you could say about Jesus, has complete two natures, 100% both. And in that, it means that when this is written, it's written through the actual author's lived experiences, through their actual inspired words. When they write a psalm, they're not just like, I, 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 it's hard to tell exactly. Does everyone know who sits down to write these things expect that they're writing scripture? Some of it they seem to be conscious of that we're writing something scriptural. Some of it they just seem to be, hey, I'm writing this. And then later there was a sense that the church realized there is truths about this that we see that God has written this, that God has created this. But it has all of the perspectives of the author's and God is okay with that. Just a quick example of this. You don't have to uh, turn there, but Psalm 148. Psalm 148 says this, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. When it says you waters above the heavens, it is specifically referring to a ancient Near Eastern way of perceiving creation in which they saw the world and it was held up by the foundations of the earth. There was waters underneath the world and there was also waters above the world, which is why the sky is blue, don't you know? And you have a waters above the heavens. Of course, it's blue. It rains down occasionally. There's a lot to it that makes sense to that. Now, of course, through development and space travel, we no longer sense this idea of the waters up above. But they did, and that was their way of perceiving the world. And you could look at that and say, like, well, but God, if God inspired it, couldn't he, like, you know, whispered in them something? Like, actually, it's just space, man. It's like 46 billion light years out. Uh, like, couldn't he have just, like, you know, done that? And he said, no, actually, because what this person is doing, he's just sitting, he's pinning a reality of God, this author. And as the author writes this, he's saying, hey, all of creation worship God. Everything from under the earth through in the earth and above the earth, everything worship God. And we fully recognize what the reality of what he is saying is, even though it is filled with his perspective that we would say in this way is pre-modern. But yet, is the truth that he's communicating any less, any more out of date? And so we have a book that is written through his perspective that we now understand. And so because of that, we understand that there are things of Scripture that are of speaking to a specific culture. And there are ways that we are trying to discern what is the reality of what's being said. For just a quick example and case study, in 1 Corinthians, it's going to talk about women wearing head coverings when they prophesy. And there's a lot to be drawn out that we, again, don't have time for right now. But essentially it's saying, hey, there was a time in a culture that women of pagan rituals and beliefs were not wearing head coverings when they were uh, worshiping their gods. And they're saying, like, hey, when you do that, you are depicting yourself as a pagan faith. And he's saying, hey, there's wisdom here to wearing a head covering while you prophesy. Does that play itself out now in 2022? No, when, when prophesy, there's not a need for a head covering. That is a cultural element. However, there are truths of distinctiveness that God is saying, hey, I want you to be distinct. I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. I want you to show who I am and not participate in these rituals that are confusing. 
you see also in Scripture that they have a culture of using the details of a story to make a point. Uh, here's a quick example of this. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness in multiple accounts of Scripture. If you take the, the version in Luke, you have the second temptation, is, and the first temptation is, you know, take these stones and make them bread. The second temptation is him being shown the mountains and saying, hey, here's all the nations, and the Satan says, I'm going to give these to you. And then the last one is he brings them to the top of the temple and he says, you know, hey, here's the, here's, you know, showing you all of Jerusalem. Now, if you take Matthew, Matthew, again, has bread, uh, stones of bread at first. Then he shifts to the temple. Then he shifts to the mountains, showing all the nations. And you could take those and say, like, oh, my goodness, there's an inconsistency. There's discon- you know, what's going on? The reality is, is that this is a common thing, and there are, there's examples of this. This is a, just an obvious and small one. There's examples all over in Scripture where authors take details and arrange them in a way that creates a point of what they're doing. So if you look at Luke, it makes sense that he ends with the temple because the temple in Jerusalem are a major focus of his gospel and what he's trying to, to, to depict. But it also makes sense in Matthew that he's going to end up on the mountain because, I mean, that's also where then you get the Sermon on the Mount. That mountains and the idea of creation and revelation and the nations are a huge part. I mean, again, Matthew ends with the Great, Commis- uh, great Commission of sending everyone out to all the nations, every tongue, tribe, and nation. That that is a major focus of Matthew's gospel. And so he ends with that. Because that's what he's driving towards more. And so this in these ways that people are going to write, they're not made to just be like as if you just got camera footage. And you could see clearly all the details as they play out, but yet they are arranging them in such a way that they are creating ways for you to understand and interpret God through the ways that they arrange orders of things. The ways that they emphasize certain numbers at times. Because numbers were a big part of their culture. And certain numbers, I mean, we, you know, we have certain things with this, with numbers, lucky number seven, unlucky 13. But they had a sense of the completeness of seven, the completeness of 12, uh, the completeness of, of seven times seven. Uh, I mean, you, you get, of course, Jesus says, you know, when he's asked, how many times should you forgive you, someone? 70 times seven. There's all these focuses on numbers and importance and truths that are created just by simply relating to numbers. I mean, that's another thing, actually, you see in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. He doesn't give you the entire genealogy from Abraham to Jesus. He cuts out generations. And what he does is he gives you three sets of, or sorry, six sets of seven. Because he's saying, hey, Jesus is the beginning of the seventh set of seven. He is the most perfect and holy, and all things have been pointing to him in this genealogy. Now, Again, we know that that's actually not the reality of when Jesus was born, but Matthew is taking the genealogy and tailoring it to say, hey, here are true realities. These are all people in his, in his genealogy, but I'm going to spe- cut it down and show you a reality that Jesus is the seventh set of seven. There's something amazingly powerful about who he is. And again, as Westerners, we're like, wait a second, that's like playing fast and loose with details, that's cutting things out, like, that's not like just presenting it like as an unbiased observer and allowing everybody else to make the idea of, uh, their own idea of what's going on. I mean, that's how we depict of how you understand truth and how you learn about something. That was not their culture. They have no problem 
with a concept of, hey, I'm going to arrange certain things, I'm going to move details in certain ways in order to create a theological truth. And again, does that mean like, holy cow, like I can't trust anything in here that there's... No, because ultimately there's nothing that is deeply connected to who we are and what we believe that is just completely erased by when we change that detail. And this is case in point. Jesus' death and resurrection is presented as completely literal and is presented to them as an all-unified account. Here is what happens. Yes, some of them are going to emphasize different moments of the death and different interactions that Jesus has or different things that Jesus says. But there is an abundant clarity that we get when we look at there was a man who has come and has revealed himself to be God and died and did not stay dead but resurrected. And that not only do the scriptures portray that with deep unity, but we also see that in history that there was something that happened around this man 2,000 years ago. And so we have clear ideas that, man, even though we are arranging details, we're not just playing fast and loose with doctrine, but rather the ways that they arrange details are not to make us give a lesser understanding of God, but a deeper understanding of God. And you're like, well, again, that is it, you know, if humans are doing it and they're interacting with it, then how is that revealing God? I mean, it would be better if we just got clear words direct from God. But here's the reality of how God works in all of humanity. He chooses to work through humans. That when he creates the world, he says, I create all of this beauty, and here's Eden, and then I want humans to take that and expand that beauty and the culture and progress things. He doesn't create a city of Revelation. He creates a garden that then progresses into the garden city in Revelation. That He says, I'm going to expand my creation through humanity. He has no problem working through humans. When Jesus comes, he is fully human and fully God because he says, I am still going to work through a human. And so when we have the sense of, man, humanity writes scripture and there's ways that they are using the spirit to arrange and depict and emphasize and de-emphasize. We learn that God is completely fine with working through humanity. That doesn't make it less divine and less impressive. In many ways, I would say, no, that makes it so much more. It becomes a picture of, have you, I've heard the analogy of the M.C. Escher drawing, the two hands that are drawing themselves, and you can't tell which is the hand and which is not the hand because they both seem to form into the other. And that scripture is that way. That God's hand is so clear in it and so evident in it that we see truths about him that only could be given to us if revealed by God. But yet the human hand is so clear and so palpable that there's nothing that is overrided by people going into trances and waking up with drool on a piece of paper and a scroll and says, holy cow, we have the revealed words of God, but rather through their personalities, through their experiences, through their perspectives, through their ways of of contemplating and meditating and saying, I I need to communicate this truth and so I'm going to make this temptation focused on, that that in itself has been how God has chosen to reveal himself more fully through Scripture. We need to recognize, just in that reality, that when we come to parts of Scripture that seem really difficult or really hard or really just like, what the heck is going on here, that, that this is a much more complex text than we want to give it credit for, of it just came off the, some people say the golden tablets just dropped off and here they are. For that reason, too, we also need to be 
un interacting with this as meditation literature. It's divine, it's human, it's meditation literature. It's meant to be read and meditated on and gone back, and as you see where it starts to have a story that seems like, man, this seems really familiar, like it seems like another story that was back in Genesis, and you go back to Genesis, and you read that story, and you read back forward to the other story, and then you see certain details were changed, certain details were consistent, and what does that mean? What is God trying to communicate with the fact that he's had certain details re-emphasized? I mean, there's all sorts of ways that the original authors, again, worked with patterns, they worked with structures of just... I, they worked with things called something called a chiasm. A chiasm is based off the, the Greek letter key or X, which is like basically a pattern that's like A, B, C, B, A. And you'll see it, uh, one that I pointed out in the past is the Tower of Babel. If you take the Tower of Babel story, it's a bit more robust than that, but if you take the first detail of the story, it interacts with the last detail of the story. If you take the second, to, uh, second detail, it interacts with the second to last, the third and the third to last, and all the way in, and so then there's a middle line, and it's meant to, in that, say, these two interact, these two interact, these two interact, but instead of putting my main point at the end, I'm putting my main point in the middle. And you'll find chiasms in entire books will be written chiastically. And that's just one example of the depth and the riches and the literary genius and concepts that have gone into the formation of Scripture. It is much more complex. It is much more Deep. I mean, you just have to reflect on it. Now, one, one just simple idea, because uh, we talk about too, like, man, what about like all the polygamy and things like that? Where like God doesn't really seem to have a problem with it. Here's the reality: you have to reflect. Sometimes it just shows sin and just lets it be there, and you have to do all the work to figure that out. Of if is this is what God is endorsing, or is this not what God is not endorsing? Example: Abraham is told by God, "Leave your family and go where I will tell you." Next chapter, Abraham. Brings his nephew Lot. It never says, I didn't say bring your nephew Lot. I said, leave your family. However, every story that Lot is in ends in disaster. It doesn't just come out and tell you that. But yet it is going to reflect very clearly that Abraham disobeys God. And it goes disastrously. But even in that, God is gracious to Lot and cares for him. He's gracious to Abraham, and he takes human mess, and he brings beauty out of it. What Abraham intended for evil, I'll do what I need to do regardless of what God says. God intends for good, and he works his story through it. Because again, God has no problem working through humanity, even our broken and sinfulness. There's so much more to be said about these details that, again, if you're just like, man, this is like, ooh, I haven't even thought about all this. This is disorienting. I, I mean, there's lots of resources out there. There's lots of things. But I simply want us to, to continually to come to Scripture with not this sense of, man, I think I've understood it because I've read all the way through it, even though there's some confusing parts, but rather, no, it's actually as we meditate on it for a lifetime, we continually find deeper understandings of how God has revealed himself because, again, God wants to be known. He wants you to know him. He wants to walk with you. He wants, why, do, why does God just choose through humanity to make it so layered and difficult? I mean, first of all, that was how cultures passed things on in an oral culture and also one where they just you know, wanted things to pass on from generation to generation. They put them layered in deeply. Why? Because if you have to search and work and meditate and, and just see deeper layers in it, 
then it is going to stick all the more and permeate through the culture all the deeper. Because God wants to teach you a heart of wisdom. He doesn't want to just give you a fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and now you get everything downloaded. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to learn from him. He wants to humbly have you walk alongside him and grow in what it is to know him and to interact the reality. And the last piece of that statement, by the way, is that so it is divine and human. It's meditation literature. And it is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Really, just quickly, as you view Scripture also, you recognize, too, this is all these books, all these genres, all these ways, all these authors across continents are all pointing towards a similar cohesive, not similar, the same cohesive story which could be described, it's been described in many different ways. I'm just going to use a five-act structure for this. Here's the five acts. Creation, the creation of all things and the call of humanity to participate with God as co-rulers and to expand that creation to rule over it with him. Followed by the fall. Humanity's inability to accept that they are under God, but rather to seek to know the knowledge of good and evil themselves so that they can be their own sense of wisdom, their own ability to go out and rule the way that they want to, and it results in destruction, death, and the disintegration of all of the creative order continually. Then you get picked up with the concept of Abraham and God taking Abraham and saying, I'm going to do this next act moving through, I'm going to bless you. I tried to bless all of humanity, they've run away, so now I'm just going to take you and your people, and that forms into the people of Israel, and I'm going to give you law and teaching, and, and then you ask for kings, and even though that's not good, I'm going to give you kings, and through those, that kingship or that kingdom, I'm going to then work through this people that is governed and moves and gets conquered and takes around, and you see constantly, I'm going to move and bless them and make them a blessing to all the nations, but instead you get the picture of Israel is this one who a mentor has invested in a people and that people has not only made the same mistake as the previous, it now is intentionally making the mistakes. And just showing that all that God does when he's working and blessing Israel, that you see this problem now of how is God going to be faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham? I'm going to bless the world through you, but yet Abraham, his people, Israelites have very much shown they have no capability or desire to do that. And so then you get in the New Testament the emergence of Jesus, who is an Israelite, who is a, of the line of Abraham. And yet, as this man is living and interacting in the world and showing what God is and his beauty and all that he is, he also is in very specific ways saying, no, I am God. I am human, I am God. And then he comes, he lives, he teaches, and then he is crucified, dies, and is resurrected again to show now to begin the last act of now he says, I'm going to go away to the Father, but I'm going to give you my spirit, and my spirit is going to fill all of you, and now the last act is going to work its way out through the church. And my called out people are going to be filled with my spirit, and are going to take the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming. Here's the kingdom that I have brought now to the world, the kingdom of the, heaven, of the heavens now coming and invading earth, and now I'm in my resurrection, send my spirit so that you now go. And just like the beginning when here's Eden and I want you to expand out creation in every direction, here's the kingdom and here's resurrection power and I want you to now expand that out throughout the world. 
and all of the books, all that's going on falls somewhere in that structure. So you can drop into the prophets, and man, they're talking all about how Israel has fallen far away, and that woe is us, but yet God is going to send someone who is going to be an appointed one, who is going to bring back Israel faithfully, and you can understand what part of the story we're in, and you can learn from it, and you can understand it. You can grasp it. This book is deep, wide, mysterious, layered, but it also has a unique a, uni- or a unified, cohesive story that, again, leads to Jesus. Because, as we said in our statement of faith, and we'll end here, that we know what it is to know God because Jesus has shown us God on earth. And we see that in John 1, where it says this, John 1, 14. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it quickly. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory... Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, this John being John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, but he who was before me, or but he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John, the gospel writer, is writing this idea and this concept that throughout all of Scripture, when Paul first meets meets Jesus and realizes that Jesus is the chosen Messiah, it says that Paul has to go away and then for years has to reread Scripture and understand everything that he knew about the Old Testament to now make sense in who the person of Jesus is. That we see, again, this now makes sense that God who is just and punishes sin and has this wicked, sinful people, is now also the end to say, but I'm going to give you mercy and grace and bless everyone through you because now we have a human who has perfectly fulfilled the law on, the, on behalf of Israel and gifted his righteousness to all of creation, but yet also, so that deals with the sinfulness of, of Israel, deals with the sinfulness of humanity, and then also God is faithful to his promise to bless us through the people of Israel. That we see in Jesus the power of God and the way that he is powerful over death and the demonic and disease. We see his creative order. We see his beauty. We see his grace. And so we, just like Paul, retool everything that we understand about the scriptures, about creation. If it flies in the face of who Jesus is, then we say that ultimately we know that through the revelation of Jesus, we have a depiction of what God's like, not the completeness by any means. There's all sorts of ways that we will see Jesus when he comes in in his fullness and his glory that will give us a deeper expansion of what it is to know God. But yet everything that we know must be in line with Jesus because he as God has revealed God. And so we, again, look at his cross week in and week out and his resurrection and we measure both his power and his mercy and what he's come to do through that. And so each week we take communion, if you take communion with me now. Communion is a regular reflection on that God has revealed himself and revealed himself through the person of Jesus, through scripture, through creation. And that again, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, shows God's mercy, it shows his love, it shows his affection for his humanity, it shows his ability to hold the tension of sinfulness that he can forgive, and then also the graciousness that he can give and bless people through Israel, through Jesus. And so the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. 
taking it. And then taking the cup of the new covenant, said, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you. Take and drink. Let's pray. Father, I again pray for us as a people to, as we say in our statement of faith, learn from who you are in creation, learn from who you are as you revealed in your word, and learn who you are as you revealed yourself through you coming to earth, you wanting to be known, you inviting to be known, you working through humanity by coming as a human. And therefore, we see all of who you are, your grace, your mercy, your strength, and your power in the person of Jesus. That scripture all points to, every scripture before him is pointing to, and every scripture, scripture afterwards is pointing back toward. And so we see the fullness of who you are in Christ, in Jesus. And Lord, let us be a people that is saturated with both the teaching, the life, the gospel of how you depict yourself in Jesus and also how you've depicted yourself through the 66 books of the Old and New Testament who is constantly revealing yourself and also how you've depicted yourself in creation. Let's hold on to these things and be a people that does not come to bring our wisdom to the world but rather reflects and humbly submits to wisdom that has been gifted to us through your spirit, through a messy and human process, but yet also has given us a reflection of who you are. You want to be known. You want to interact with us. You want to grow us in wisdom. Allow us to see you as that and interact again with these ways so that we might know you more and walk deeper with you, becoming truly what it is to be human. In Jesus' name, amen.